In the last couple of Bible studies we've had, we've been talking about the significance of man and his being made in the image of God and the fact that this image is a re- means that we are a representation, meaning very simply that God has placed us here, each individual person, to represent him. That's why we're here. And that means then that we need to act as if we represent him. Now, in the same way, those that are in heaven are his imagers as well. And they represent him in heaven. In the same way, we are to represent God here. The angels and the sons of God, the teraphim or the seraphim and whatever other creatures that God has surrounding his throne as described in the book of Revelation and and Isaiah and so on. And these are representatives who are to act on God's behalf just as we are to act on his behalf here. Now, having said all of that, this introduction here will be a little bit lengthy, but it's what I got. So here we go. In, uh, starting in, in Genesis, when God, God made man, and we've covered those the last couple of, couple of Sundays, he placed him in a very specific location, and that place being the Garden of Eden. In chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 8, it says that Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, planted a garden eastward in Eden. There he put the man whom he had formed. And verse 15 says the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Now, there's a number of other places in, in Genesis where it tells us that God and man conversed with each other. They talked. And we would assume, and it seems apparent, that it was a normal thing that in this place, in the garden, that God had created uh, to be his dwelling place here and a place to commune with man, that it was a very normal thing, just like it is with the beings in heaven that God communicates with. Now, of course, we know the story, and we won't. I'm not going to labor over those things, but just highlight them and just say that, you know, we know that through Adam and Eve's disobedience and their eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were removed from the garden and they lost their privileged position and God expelled them. And that meant they no longer had access to God the way they had before. Their access was limited to God choosing to appear to them or make himself known to them, to speak to them, and so on. Now, so rather than being in a place where God, uh, Adam could tend God's garden, now he's outside with briars and thistles and cultivating and hoeing weeds. And man has been doing that ever since. And by the way, we sweat when we do it, too. In the garden, Adam didn't have to do that, even though he toiled and kept the garden 
outside was wet. Now in chapter 4, uh, it says there a significant verse, and I think you should turn there and look at it. In, in Genesis chapter 4, and by the way, we looked at the, I guess it was Wednesday night, I think, last Wednesday, we looked at this verse in our Wednesday night Bible study. And if you, if you ought to be there, really. You ought to be listening to what Mark is sharing with us, and you would profit greatly. Notice in that verse, it says, As for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And men, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And we saw Wednesday night that that word began. Um, if you look in Strong's Dictionary, you find out that the meaning of that word means to, to profane. And it's actually translated that way in several places uh, in the Bible. Like, uh, for, for instance, um, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 8, it says, Therefore, everyone who eats it on the third day, that is, this sacrifice, if they didn't consume it, he says, shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned the hallowed offering of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. That was in verse 12. And I probably need some water. And tell Harris I probably need his cough drop that extra when he's God. Because <laughs> I don't think I'm going to make it otherwise. Um, so, and then in chapter 20 of, verse, uh, of Leviticus, verse 3, it says there, I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people because he has given some of his descendants to Molech to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. And there is at least a couple of translations that recognize this difficulty here. In some contexts, it means to wound, and one translation represents that. Um, another one actually translates it as profane. Then men began to profane the name of the Lord. And I think that's significant because it fits the general context of man's downward declension over time. And he began, and he, he just simply failed, thank you, sir, to... Um, he simply failed to maintain that relationship with God that had been there in the garden. I mean, once man was removed from the garden, it was just a downward spiral, and it continued to go down. And if we continue on, we come to chapter 6, where we find this awful account of where the sons of God left their realm in heaven, and they came down, and it says they cohabited. They took women and had offspring with them, children. And the Bible calls them giants. They were perversions of what God had designed. And it says there then, as a result of that whole thing, the whole population of the earth became corrupt before God. 
Matter of fact, in verse 7 of chapter 6, it says, Yahweh said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then in verse 11, it says, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So we see that as a result, there was nothing but wickedness and evil and violence that occurred on the earth as a result of Adam and Eve and as a result of these heavenly beings, these sons of God coming down and cohabiting with these women on the earth and having perverted offspring, giants, Nephilim. So God chose to destroy the whole earth, every living thing, And he determined that he would do so by means of a flood. So in verse 17, God said, Behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Well, of course, we know that there was an exception. God found a man that was righteous, blameless, who didn't walk according to the ways of the men of the earth. And God determined that he would spare Noah. Noah and his family. And it says there in verse 9 and verse 18 that this is the genealogy of Noah. He was a just man, perfect in his generations, or blameless. And he walked with God. What a significant statement. That was only made one other time previously by a man by the name of Enoch. And God took him to heaven, caught him up, and removed him from the earth. And now God is going to remove the the people of the earth, and he's going to lift up Noah on an ark and spare him through these floodwaters. But in verse 18, he says, But... Concerning Noah, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, just think of the context that we're in here. So it's in this context, then, that we come upon the first instance of the number 40 in the Bible. And that's what we're going to deal with, this number 40 today. In chapter 7 of Genesis and verse 4, notice what it says. He says, for after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. In verse 11, he says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 17 now says, Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. I mean, God made it very clear. 40 days, 40 nights. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, 
and it rose high above the earth. Now we know that the waters remained on the earth um, for another 150 days. But this declaration here has to do with God's judgment of 40 days and 40 nights of rain upon the earth that continued day and night until his judgment was complete. Now, this number 40 occurs many times in Scripture in several different contexts, and it's not always days. Sometimes it's years. Um, And like other numbers that we know of, it has special meaning. Uh, Most frequently, when you see about the number 40, it has to do with testing or with trials, or as in this case here, with judgment, or occasionally it may have to do with with what we would call an epic or a, a period of time in which God determined that he was going to accomplish some specific distinguishing thing. Um, In bringing the flood on the earth uh, to destroy all the flesh, Yahweh did so by by marking it off with 40 days and 40 nights. It had a beginning and an ending, and it was set apart by that. And there were other events in the Bible that we are some very familiar with. Um, (coughs) We know most frequently probably about um, God's people being delivered from Egypt and how they refused to go into the promised land and how they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. It was a period of trial, a period of judgment for them because of their refusal to trust God by faith and go into this land and subdue it. Now, out of those 12 that God chose to go up and spy out the land, two of them said, hey, we can do it. Let's just trust God and he will deliver us. Ten of them said, no, it just can't be done. The giants are too big. We saw them up there and they're just too big. Matter of fact, they were so big, they made us look like grasshoppers. As a matter of fact, the scripture says, we look like grasshoppers to them. Now, you know what you can do with a grasshopper. You can step on it and you can crush it <laughs> if you can catch one. But in this instance, God had determined that they should be able to go up and take it. And because they didn't, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until they all died. Not a one was allowed to go in and take possession of that land of milk and honey. Isn't that an amazing thing? They saw giants, and God said milk and honey. And they just simply didn't believe God. Now that's a lesson for you and I when it comes to walking by faith and believing what God has in store for us and what he wants us to do. Now, Um, down in Numbers chapter 14 because of that he says your sons shall be like shepherds out in the wilderness and of course we know that shepherds are prone to wandering as they care for their flock but in verse 34 Numbers um, well I forgot what it was Numbers 14 
and verse 34, it says, according to the number of days in which you spied out the land, which was 40 days, he says, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. So God is not pleased when we do not trust him by faith. And he rejected them because of it. Now, there are many other examples, of course, too. Uh, Moses, we know, spent 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai with Yahweh, receiving instructions from him. And it says there he didn't eat or drink the whole time he was there. As a matter of fact, and it also says he laid prostrate frequently during those 40 days and nights before the Lord. The Ninevites, you remember when Jonah went in to preach to Nineveh? And he said, guys, you got 40 days to repent. Because if you don't, God's going to come in and destroy it. Of course, we know the story. They did. And God spared them. And they responded to God's message. Elijah fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. In 1 Kings chapter 19, it says, Elijah arose and he ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. There are other examples of things like uh, God limiting punishing criminals to 40 stripes. He said, you can't go beyond that. You don't want to humiliate them, but you do want to punish them for their crime. And then you remember in the book of Judges, whenever there was oppression and God raised up a deliverer, what happened? Three occasions, three key events in the book of Judges, he gave them 40 years of peace on each occasion. So you see, here's an instance where God gave peace as opposed to judgment or trial or testing. Now, and then another one that I have no clue if this, how this applies or in what significance it has. But you remember when Joseph died in Egypt, it took him 40 days to embalm him and to prepare him for burial. I'm, I'm not sure either of the significance of the words, uh, if you take them ultimately very literally there, but you remember he told them when they left, whenever you're going to leave Egypt, he says, you take my bones with you. Well, that was over four, that was 400 years later. So apparently that embalming didn't last, you know, as long as it was supposed to, unless that was just a, 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 a um, um, I'm losing the word I want to use, a collective word, you know, for his body. And don't take the whole thing with you up there to Canaan and you bury it up there. Well, that's Old Testament. And of course, we know that the number 40 is used in the New Testament as well. And this is what I'm leading up to. Because remember that this is the very thing that the Lord went through when he was entering his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, 
verse 1. It says there, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And some of the commentators seem to indicate that God suspended his need for food during those 40 days because apparently he didn't get hungry. It doesn't say he got hungry during the 40 days. It says he didn't get hungry till after the whole thing was over with. But it was during this time, and this is what I think is significant here, and I better turn over to Luke chapter 4 myself. Uh, it was during this time, uh, this 40-day period, that the devil sought to gain superiority over the Lord Jesus Christ. How was he going to do that? Well, if you look at verse 5, after tempting Jesus to turn stones to bread, it says, Then the devil taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Now there's some important points to note there. The devil wanted to offer Jesus authority. We know that word, exousia. Authority. That means to hold the position of power and having the freedom to exercise your will over whatever it is you have authority over. And here he says, I'm going to give you authority over the kingdoms of the world or the nations of the world. Now, in our world today, we have somewhere close to 200 nations. I don't know what was it, how many there were in, in Jesus' day. Now, I better stay away from that. That'll be a rabbit trail. Can't go down there. So, anyway, along with that authority, he says... I'll give you the glory too. You see that? He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says in verse 6, all this authority I will give you and their glory. Now you stop and think about a worldwide gathering of all the heads of the nations of this world and all the pomp and glory that goes along with such an assembly. And in this world, it's great. And the devil was offering this to Jesus. Now, again, the next point we ought to notice is he had the power, the authority to do what he was doing. You notice what it says there. For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. So we need to understand who 
the prince and the power of the air is over this present world? And who has power and authority over the nations and what he was offering to Jesus? Because it was a great privilege. Now, following this, you notice one other point here. It was a real problem. And that was the devil said, you're going to have to worship me. You see that in verse 7. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And this was the thing that caused a reaction on the part of the Lord Jesus when he answered by quoting a passage or a verse, a statement, if you will, from the Old Testament, from the book of Moses, Exodus, where he said, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, if you look back to that passage, you'll see it says, You shall fear Yahweh, and him only shall you serve. And Jesus was acknowledging that Yahweh was the supreme God and the devil had no place in asking Jesus to worship him. Now, it's interesting also, if you go to the end of Jesus' ministry, if you go to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, So you may want to turn there and look at it. It says there, concerning his disciples, and this is following his death, burial, and resurrection, and he had it was appearing to his disciples, and he said, All authority has been given to me. And it's the same word. The authority that the devil was offering to Jesus had now been secured by the Lord apart from the devil. And he says, this authority has been given to me not just on the earth and the nations of the earth, but he says, in heaven and on earth. A far superior position than what the devil was offering. And so he said, now watch, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. So you see, Jesus, in having gained this authority, or the King James says power, I think, but it's, it's the same word back in Luke, this exousia, this authority over these nations. He said, go make disciples of them. So who gave him that authority? Well, it doesn't state explicitly, but the clear implication that we would derive from that is God the Father. As a result of his successfully enduring the suffering that was associated with the cross and his dying 
in the shedding of his blood and his burial in a grave, sealed in a tomb, and then rising from the dead, all secured what God wanted to give him in offering him the authority over heaven and earth. So, what went on then between the time that the devil offered Jesus this authority and the time that Jesus secured it and announced it to his disciples? Well, we know it was the cross. It was the crucifixion. It was the death, the burial, the resurrection, but also the appearance of Jesus for 40 days after his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that significant passage there where Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And that believing in vain means you believed without a purpose, without a valid cause. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, Verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. And then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Now, if we go back to Acts chapter 1, following the resurrection, it says there, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now one of the things I would like for us to see is that in the context in which I'm speaking of here, these forty days have a direct reference to the kingdom of God. Jesus was in the wilderness forty days, And the devil came offering him all the kingdoms of the world and authority over them. Following his ministry and his death, burial, resurrection, his 40-day appearance to well over 500 different people, many who were still living in Paul's day, he said, and then his ascension to heaven. And you remember where he ascended to, to the right hand of God, to that throne 
And there he occupied the place that God had prepared for him. And he successfully went through and endured all that God had, I won't say asked him to do, but had designed for him to do and planned for him to do. And he willingly submitted to. And so these 40 days then were connected distinctly with the coming kingdom. And you'll remember then, it says there, during those 40 days, the topic which was foremost on his mind, it says, was the kingdom of God. So the devil had used those 40 days in in the wilderness when Jesus was being tried or tested to try to thwart God's plan for who was to rule the nations of this earth. And of course, it ended in in utter failure. And it was after these 40 days, during his resurrection time, when he was preaching and teaching his disciples, and not just the 12, but I'm talking about the 500 that Paul speaks of and, and others, including the apostles, about his kingdom, all of this, was a powerful and bold declaration on God's part right in the face of the devil himself. Because he knew at that point he was a loser. Now just remember that because he knew he was a loser. He had lost. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or excuse me, in Colossians chapter 2. Let's turn over there. Colossians chapter 2. And look at verse 13. Notice here what what Paul says. And we're we're doing a follow-up here now on this 40 days. So keep that thought in your mind. And you, he says, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. Excuse me, I'm about to get a drink. Having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Notice the finality of that statement. It's done. But look at verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, that is, in the cross. He disarmed, rendered powerless the principalities and the powers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph 
in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Now, it's not probably jumping out at you at this point what Paul is trying to demonstrate to these Corinthians. When he is describing to them what the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished when he rose from the grave and spent those 40 days leading up to his ascension preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. But notice that word triumph. He always leads us in triumph in Christ. And if you look at most any commentator on this verse, those who are, you know, the scholars who write these things for us, will tell you that Paul was having a specific reference back to the Roman generals who would go out on their campaigns seeking to take over the nations of the earth. And when they would gain the victory, they would come back to Rome, bringing their entourage with them, and they would parade through the streets, and I'm going to guess probably Main Street of Rome, leading down to the capital. There, flamboyantly showing off what he had just accomplished. Now, Paul uses this word triumph. You know, you'll remember that, notice that in, in both of these passages. One of my, my favorite guys, Marvin Vincent, described this whole scene this way. So I'm going to read it to you because he, I thought he did a 10 times better job than I could ever do, maybe 12. Here's what he said. The Greek word used in these passages was used to denote the Roman triumph celebrated by victorious generals on their return from their campaigns. The general entered the city in a chariot preceded by the captives and spoils that he had taken in war and followed by his troops and proceeded in state along the sacred way to the capital where he offered sacrifices in the temple of Jupiter. And then he says he was accompanied in his chariot by his children sometimes by his confidential friends, while behind him stood a slave holding over his head a jeweled crown. The body of the infantry brought up the rear, their spears adorned with laurel, and they shouted triumph and sang hymns in praise of the gods or their leader. Now, of course, when he says they, they sang hymns in, in praise of the gods, you remember that the other nations of the earth were polytheistic. They worshiped multiple gods. But you might also want to put in perspective that over these nations, God had placed these rebellious Elohim, these rebellious heavenly beings who had rejected his heavenly authority and placed him over these nations. And we can go back to Genesis and we could spend a considerable amount of time delving into that. 
I don't want, that's not my point this morning. My point is simply to note why they were worshiping these gods. Paul, he says, describes himself and the other subjects of Christ's grace under the figure of this triumphal pomp in which they are led as trophies of the Redeemer's conquest. In other words, during those 40 days in which Jesus was declaring himself alive, showing himself by many infallible proofs, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1. During that time he was doing that, it was the same as if, you know, I just realized I left my headset down there, so I better stay right here. It was the same as if Jesus was one of these Roman generals and he was leading us in triumph as his captives, as his prized possession, just like those Roman generals. And of course, if you want to put it in true perspective, you just have to, you know, bear up your sanctified imagination and try to imagine just what it was like for one of those Roman generals to go parading down the streets of Rome during the time of Jesus when he lived on the earth and all the pomp and glory that accompanied those generals. And you'll gain a little bit of a picture of what it was like for Jesus during those 40 days that he spent upon the earth following his resurrection. Now the scripture doesn't say a whole lot more about it other than what the Apostle Paul has to tell us here. I like how the NIV says it. The NIV translates this verse of 2 Corinthians 2.14 says it this way, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us, uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Do you understand? When we were created in the image of God and he placed us here as his representatives that were perfumed up, that if we have believed in him and his son Jesus, that if we belong to him as his redeemed ones, that we are a sweet-smelling aroma. Or, I forget how the King James expresses it now, but what a, what a delight, what a joy that we are in God's sight and in the sight of his son who sits at his right hand today in heaven delighting in those who follow him and believe in him. And I mean follow him in obedience. I'm not talking about Christian rebels who think that they just received Christ as their Savior and acknowledge the death 
and, and that Christ died for them and the blood that he shed and then go off and live how they want. As a matter of fact, let's jump ahead a little bit here to Revelation, the book of Revelation and chapter 12. Now, Mark just took us through the book of Revelation, so hopefully some of this will still be fresh in your minds, and it'll be just a, a, a reminder of what was said before. In chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars, and then, <coughs> then being with child... Then being with child, she cried out in, in labor and in pain to give birth. Down in verse 5, it says she bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Now, it's important that you catch the significance of him being caught up to God's throne. God fully accepted all that Jesus had done in his death on the cross. And he welcomed and received him. Now, look at verse 12. In view of this then, he says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. That's those in the heavenly realm. But then he says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. You see, at the end of those 40 days, and that ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to the throne at the right hand of God the Father, that was Satan's death knell. That was the old dragon's nail in the coffin, as it were, because it was done for him. And yet, the scriptures here make it very clear he wasn't about to give up. It says he came down in fury, and wrath. And I want you to look at verse 17. And it says there, the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Notice who those offspring are that he's enraged with. Those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those who obey his commandments and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see, those rebels, that's exactly where he wants them. They're fine. It's the obedient ones that he's after. And we need to be aware of that today. As that, in that as the Lord Jesus Christ has secured his rightful place as ruler over the nations of this earth, the devil is after you and me. And the more we seek to obey 
and honor Christ and bear his testimony, the more you need to expect his wrath to be poured out on you because he's after you. Um, when you stop and think about these or ponder these things, these truths, and you recognize that God has gained the victory over Satan and that he is openly displaying the redeemed before this whole world like trophies, that's a thrilling thought, isn't it? And it makes you, <laughs> makes you feel good. But on the other hand, to know that there's an enemy out there who's against us, working against us, fighting against us, seeking to defeat you. Jesus has not been defeated. He gained the victory. The only way you and I will gain the victory and secure our position with, with him is to remain obedient, to be a faithful, loyal follower of Christ. If we have taken up our cross and determined that we are going to follow him, then the way to gain the promise that he has given to you and I to share in that coming rule and reign with him is to stay faithful and not ever give up. Don't ever, ever give up. He has called us in many different aspects, as we read in the New Testament, many different things he's called us to do. He's called us to meet together like we are this morning. To be in fellowship with one another. And Paul says, when you meet together, encourage one another to be faithful. To stay on the path. To not give up. To walk in love, he said. To avoid the appearance of evil. He said, let us walk circumspectly. The old King James word there. And I like that word. <laughs> because it just, it just simply means when you walk as a Christian, when he says walk circumspectly, he just means walk, being able to look around and know what's going on around you in this world. Pay attention to the things that are going on in your life. Walk with wisdom. Be discerning. Be able to know what the devil's trying to do to you, how he's trying to lure you as he did Eve and to make you give in and succumb. You remember what the writers to the Hebrews said in, in chapter six, don't you? To those that turn back. He says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Turn over there. Hebrews chapter 6. Because there's something there that we need to see. And let me see if I can go back and find my place here where I need to be. Um, yep, right there, okay. All right. Notice in Hebrews chapter 6, in verse 6, it says... All of, now, and by the way, notice what it says in verse 5. 
They, these who have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That's the kingdom that Jesus was teaching his disciples about during those 40 days. And he says, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and watch this last phrase, and put him to an open shame. Did you know that that's the same word or form of the word used back in Colossians chapter 2 when it tells us there that God, through his son Jesus, having disarmed the principalities and the powers, he made a public spectacle of them. For you to turn back and just quit or just say, I, I, I can't do it, is to put Jesus out to an, an open spectacle. Openly shame him as he was when he was crucified on the cross some 2,000 years ago. And if we're not careful, we can go back and do it again today. Now, I'm not trying to be scary, but I am trying to put you on the alert that we need each other. And we need to be assembled together like this. We need to encourage one another. We need to acknowledge the things that God has spoken to us in his word about the fellowship of the saints so that we can make it through this thing together. Because if there's one thing I get from the scripture, it is you ain't going to do it all by yourself. You can't do it alone. There's no such thing in the Bible as a lone ranger Christian. We need each other. So let's devote ourselves and let's renew our commitment and our hearts to the service of our Lord Jesus Christ and being faithful to him. Because if you do, that promise is absolute ironclad guaranteed that you will be called up to reign with him. And you will experience all that glory and all that marvelous privilege that goes along with sitting on a throne and ruling over the nations of this earth. Let's pray. Our Father, we do want to thank you for the blessings you've given us and the promises, oh God, the promises you've given us in your word that are so sure and sound, trustworthy, believable. Let us not be like those 10 spies who said, I can't do it. It's impossible to overcome when you've told us we can through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.